listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. All right, Jeff. So today we are going to introduce our, I think, our fourth of our new formats. I think we're on number four. Four of how many? Four, we have four of 50. Four, <laughs> four of four. We're going to introduce 50 new podcast formats and see how that goes. Listeners, buckle up. It's going to be along here. <laughs> buckle up and give us feedback. <laughs> and give us feedback. So this is our fourth. And this, I'll, I'll let you describe the origin of this. Why are we doing this? Explain what we're doing and why we're doing it. Because I think this was one that that you, you felt really strongly about when we were kind of brainstorming different ways to, to, to approach this podcast in 2023. And you had good rationale. So tell the listeners the backstory. I know the backstory. Yeah. I'm excited. About I was there. You, <laughs> you were there, but I had to carry you then yeah, as well. Well, I, well, I wasn't listening to you. But I'm teasing. Of course I was listening to you. This is a great idea. So go. So I, I'm excited about this one. This format is called Brand Breakdown. And what we're going to do is pick a firm at random, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And Jason and I are going to go in separately and assess the firm from a brand and marketing perspective. And we have some criteria. We'll talk about that in, in just a sec. But this idea, and I'm really excited about this idea for multiple reasons, and I think listeners will be as well. We did an episode, gosh, two years ago, well, where wow. we broke down McKinsey's rebrand and we analyzed the thinking behind what was produced in a new and, and I would say impressive rebranding exercise that McKinsey did. And it was an incredibly well-received episode. Even the McKinsey people had to listen to it. Not that any of them called me to discuss our assessment. I talked to them a couple, a couple of folks about it, and nobody was offended. So that's yeah. a good thing. Yeah, and and it, it's a good thing because our goal is not to offend. Our goal yeah. is to assess and create teachable moments, if you will, for our listeners. And I say listeners are going to be excited about this because in a past life where I've worked with customers helping them grow in a, in a B2B, B2C type of environment. High performers want feedback and they need to know how they're performing. And I was really struck by how open people are to feedback around their brands. These are very emotional and personal things, but they really are the physical manifestation and the translation of business strategy and culture. And in today's world, so much of that is digital. So we hope you like this. We're going to choose these things at random. But should we explain the methodology and how we picked the, the firm that we're starting with? I mean, yes, it was ahead. super Go scientific. Ahead. It was very scientific, it, very scientific. <laughs> We're so because, because we don't want to offend anybody majorly. Jason has the quality of offending people even when he doesn't want to. I am. Oh, that's not true. I, I get along you're, you're the one with that issue. Listen to how you're offending me on purpose in the moment. Like, but, I, I would but, never do that. There are a lot of great firms out there. A lot of firms we know and a lot of firms we don't. And we didn't want to just pick the firms that we know. It would be 
easy to pick a, B, a big four, one of the big strategy firms and, and break those down like we did with McKinsey. Those are all A players. And we thought it would be more valuable to look at firms that our listeners may not be familiar with. So we came up with this methodology. Go ahead, Jason, explain it. Yeah, the methodology is very detailed. So we found a, a directory on, we used Clutch as a directory with a listing of firms. And we literally at random, you know, basically scrolled up and down at super fast pace with our eyes closed. And then one person said, stop. And that was the firm we went with. <laughs> so was, the, only, the only caveats we had was that we wanted firms over 50 employees. So having some reasonable scale. So that would obviously imply, you know, revenue at, at least five to 10 million or greater. And then we, Interestingly enough, we wanted firms headquartered in North America. Turns out the firm we ended up with, I don't believe, is actually headquartered in North America. So it must have been their their U.S. headquarters is what, what you know, let that system serve it up. Jeff built actually a really nice six-point breakdown. So it's we basically you know identified six things to look at as it relates to a firm's you know, a firm's brand. And as, as Jeff said, this is not necessarily only and or not, not, not about like the logo and the visual expression, although that's certainly a piece of it because that's a, a piece of how you tell your story, but that's just one small segment of it. In fact, brand identity, which I would lump as logo and visual identity is only 15% of that six point dimension. So the other five points of that are positioning, point of view, solutions, architecture, personality, and employer brand. And those are all weighted differently. So there's 20 questions that we asked ourselves, and each one has, has been given five points, potential of five, so one to five. And then there's like certain sections are overweighted. So positioning is worth 20%. So getting positioning right is worth 20%. Point of view is worth 20%. Personality is only worth 10%. And then employer brand and brand identity are worth 15% each. So it sort of you know, overweights things that we believe kind of like as marketers and as advisors are maybe more important than getting a firm's strategy execution from a sales and marketing effort correct. So let's talk about caveats. I think I think you mentioned this this Jeff, we should set some caveats on what we did here. You know, you already mentioned a few of these. One is we don't know these firms. We with this particular firm I had never heard of prior. We sort of picked it at random. Obviously we not sort of we completely picked it at random. And we obviously aren't privy to the internal dealings of the firm or the business strategy of the firm, what they're trying to accomplish. So we're looking at their external expression of that through largely through their website, their digital property and other indicators, things like Google search or LinkedIn or Glassdoor as evidence of what's going on. But we're not privy to what they're doing or what they're trying to do. We're just privy to what they're telling the marketplace. And so we're evaluating based on that. And we might this, we might infer what we believe the strategy is based on that, but we don't necessarily know that. So I don't, again, I think as you said, it's like the goal is not to offend anybody and not, neither is really the goal to, to, to like tear down a single firm. The goal is to create learnings for everyone involved, you know, the two of us and listeners. So the, the teardown is intended to look at what's working, what's not working, so we can all learn from it to apply so we can all be better at translating our business strategy into our sales and marketing strategy from a brand perspective. So what else in the caveats that I missed? I know there was probably more that you wanted me to hit on. No, I think you did a really nice job. Neither one of us has any relationship to this firm at all. All right. Drum roll. Let's get rolling. IBM. Never heard of those guys. It's just, just possible. with you. <laughs> so the firm is an Italian-based firm called Muveri. The firm is a 22-year-old IT consulting firm, and you can find it at Muveri, M O V 
I-R-I.com. If you're sitting at your desk and you want to follow along with this analysis, that is their website. Actually, one of, of several websites you'll find out briefly. But they are an IT consulting company focused on transformation. And we'll leave it at that. And then we'll start to dive into the various areas. All right. So let's start with positioning. So what was your take? I mean, we had a, we had a four-point model on this, sort of like what we're seeing in the positioning of the firm or, or not seeing. What was your takeaway on that? I think this firm fell into the trap that most IT consulting firms fall into. They positioned around, I think, the trite and formulaic transformational consulting moniker. And whenever I, it just, it shuts me down. <laughs> like, yeah. oh gosh, it's generic. What does transformation means? Means a million things to different people. And it's just not clear what's the value that they provide right out of the gate. Uh, let me interrupt you for one second. Clients feel the same way. So in our thought leadership research we did last year, Alan Alper from Bidet TLP interviewed some clients directly. And there's a direct quote in an interview with the CIO talking about the concept of digital transformation and how tired he or she is of hearing about it. It's like, I don't care about digital transformation. I don't want to talk about digital transformation. Too big, it's too broad, it's too heady. So it's to your point, it's sort of meaningless. So clients feel the same way you do. So if that's your central brand message, I, th I do think that's probably concerning. Now that's one data point, I could be wrong, but I'm going to read the positioning language directly from the homepage for people because it's, it's, it is, it's sort of innocuous transforming business one company at a time, okay? What business are we transforming? How are we transforming it? Why are we transforming it? What types of companies, right? So so your point, it does feel very hollow at the entry point, at the apex from a positioning perspective. But keep going. I didn't mean to derail you. I probably just did. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. Did you have another thought on that? Oh, I have many more thoughts, but I wanted well, to hear, you. I wanted, I wanted oh, hear you keep going. You know, what struck me from a positioning perspective was I couldn't find anything that really told me in a clear way, the types of clients that they wanted to do business with. There wasn't like a discernible market model. There's a section on their site about industries and there's a, there's four industries declared, but you really can't dig deep into those. And there's a time that, you know, we'll talk more about this later, but on their about page, they have this whole thing they call their manifesto, which I think is a big part of their go-to-market in terms of trying to communicate what they're all about. And everything just feels very, what I'll say, I'll say it feels very firm-centric to me, not customer-centric. There's a lot talking about them and what they do and how they do it and not a whole lot of like, why do I want this and why do I care and what's the problem that's here to solve? And that's sort of was what I was taking away from sort of the positioning of it was Again, yeah, and I'll go a layer beneath that. You know, Moviri is a multinational consulting and software group of companies helping customers harness the power of transformative technologies. Okay. What customers, what technologies, what type of transformation, right? So you're just you're sort of left in a very, okay, I don't know much. Um, I'd like to know more, maybe. So it just felt like it, it, it was a lot of hard work to discern really who they're wanting to do business with beyond very clearly the IT function of the business. Because this does feel to me like a very technology-driven firm selling into technology orgs, the uh -huh. technology function within the org versus selling into the business decision maker. That's my takeaway. But Yeah. I, well, I'm a big fan of manifestos. Yes. But a manifesto to me needs to build a following. A manifesto is a linchpin in creating simpatico to a large degree. 
It's about how you see the world and why you see the world. And it's an invitation to others to join your movement, if you will. Yeah. So in that vein, I think it's okay to be more kind of company centric. You know, we, we, we believe we this, we that, but it has to invite people in. And I don't think there was much of that in the manifesto at all. And the manifesto, I felt the important elements of the manifesto did not make it out into homepage. Here's why we're relevant and why you should care and the impact that we're going to have in, in your lives. So I think there's some good stuff there. It just needs to be extracted out and positioned in the, in the right place at the right time in the buyer's journey. I felt like the manifesto required me to work too hard to yeah. understand who this company is. I don't want to work that hard to understand who you are. I don't yeah. have time for that. Yeah. The idea of a manifesto, we talked about this a little bit with Jody Padar and the idea that like her point of view, she never felt like she was creating a point of view as much as she was capturing a movement within the industry and sort of just explaining it and making sense of it. And that to me is if you're going to have a manifesto is kind of what you're trying to do is you're trying to capture a zeitgeist. Is that the right word? Yeah, exactly. Of what's happening. And I agree. I felt like there was pieces that were starting there, but then it was really just too hard to get to. I mean, it took a very long time to get through it. I mean, I I probably spent 15 to 20 minutes consuming everything in that, that manifesto. And I can't imagine too many clients or even talent would probably do that if the audience for that was talent, because it does exist under the about section of the site, which is largely where you expect talent to go to learn about the firm. So, so it's possible that that's not really even intended for clients. You know, back to my comment about like not being client-centric, at times as I was kind of like interacting with this firm, I kind of felt like I wonder if it feels more like without knowing the ins and outs of the organization, it feels more like an incubator than a services firm. Because a lot of what they're doing is is rolling out product-based businesses off of technology backbones and which is why it felt kind of client-centric to not not client-centric to me was because it's like maybe the business problem is 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 it's all about attracting great talent to do more of that and less concerned about the client because maybe there's not maybe there's a different funding source that we're not privy to. Hold that thought because we're going to go into that a lot deeper because I yeah. I think that is both threat and opportunity to to this organization. I do want to draw one thing out of the the manifesto that I think the firm could build on but is not. It and I think this is reflective of an attempt to position, but not carrying it through. There was a line in there that said, we work on big problems where solutions are hard to find, but can have the most significant impact on business and society. I like that that ethos of let's attack the big problems. Let's look for, you know, big, audacious, hairy problems that we can solve because that attracts top talent to your point. It makes for interesting work. And generally that type of work is work that hasn't been done before, right? It's not the same old audit over and over and over and over again. It positions a firm to really foster breakthrough thinking. And I think there is some of that going on in this firm I think there's definitely a lot of that going on in this firm. I, I mean, I, I think my, my hunch is that this firm is super successful. You know, 
either growing really fast or, or hitting the bottom line really well. I'm going to disagree a little bit on that statement though. And I'll, I'll pull from one of our clients who's been on this podcast. So this notion of we, we work on big problems where solutions are hard to find, have the most impact. That's a message that in the AE space has become kind of like the hub, the central like message of positioning for a lot of really big firms. You know, we work on the your most difficult challenges, the most complex things that face society because we want to have the biggest impact. Well, that's also again coming back to what I said before. Doesn't is that really all that client centric? If you stop and think about it, a lot of clients are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I need you to do that. I also need you to work on the things that aren't sexy at all that just need to get done. And I remember Gil Hunch from MSA, the CEO of MSA, who came on our podcast once, told me this once. He's like, Jason, you can't just be there for the big stuff. You got to be there for the mundane day-to-day stuff if you want to be a great partner to your clients. And so that's always stuck with me. I actually think it's a really interesting point of view on that. And I do think it's like, there are a lot of firms that that's the, that the central thing that they want to tell the marketplace is we want to only work on the big stuff. And I think it pushes clients away frequently. It's like, yeah, 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 I get that. But you know what? I also need help with this thing over here that's really not that, it's not a big problem, but it has to be done. I need someone to help me do it. And I want a partner that will do that too, not just show up on the big big stuff. So I don't love that message at all for that reason. I think you raise a good point. And it's important to be clear about the positioning. Yeah, We talked about this in the McKinsey rebrand. They were seen as strategy, strategic. We don't get our hands dirty. But when then, when transformation, air quotes, and digitization hit, the clients started saying, we need implementation help. And that's when McKinsey started acquiring digital firms. And really, I think what drove the need to rebrand that firm. So I agree with that, but you have to be clear on where you're going to play. This firm is not clear on that. And I like the concept from an ethos of solving big problems, but you have to define what the big problem is yeah, and what are the problems and solutions that cascade out of that problem. And that's why solution architecture is so important in communicating how you can help in the way that you just described. Let's go there because that's one of the other six points on the on the brand model. So solution architecture, what was your feeling about that? I think I probably was more complimentary than you on this in this dimension. You know, I don't know how I feel about the solution architecture. They outline four business lines. I, I don't like the use of business lines. That phrase. But yes. That phrase. To me, that's more capabilities or or something. But they have four very clearly baked lines of business with very specific value propositions, and they consistently lay those out across the entire digital storefront of here, even down into their employer brand. So Yeah, I was going to say those four things show up consistently even on LinkedIn, which fr- frequently you'll see that disconnect where like someone set up a LinkedIn page and it gets forgotten. It probably even happens here. I, I agree. I think those four, yeah, I th- just for listeners, it's it's performance in- engineering, analytics, cybersecurity, and internet of things. And they're, they're really consistent about those things at every turn. And I thought they were they were pretty well articulated. I mean, at least I, I think if you're an IT buyer or a CIO, you go to any one of those pages, you understand right away what this firm is and how they can probably help you in those dimensions. So I thought that was pretty successful. 
Yeah, I think they did a nice job with that. But to me, it was too one-dimensional. They had industries, but you couldn't drive down to the industries. The website was broken. Or they didn't, they chose not to develop the industry program in in depth, but or they, it's in development right now, right? Maybe it's something yeah. they're working on. And they, we, we, for all we know, they launched this site a week ago. We have no idea. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But then the other element, and this is, they do, I think, both a good job and a bad job here. They spin off these companies. I'm assuming from the intellectual capital from past client engagements. And they've created a portfolio of four companies that they stand up, invest in, and manage. And each company is aligned with each business line. But it's not really clear what's going on and what the connection is there and how the business lines or capabilities sync up with the companies, which really are software tools. And it makes you makes you wonder, okay, are, are what you're saying that in the field of performance engineering, you've developed your own proprietary product in order to manage performance. You're not using an off-the-shelf solution. I don't get that. It's not clear to me how that works. And that was, I I felt like I had to spend a lot of energy just trying to figure it out so I could talk about it on this podcast. I can't imagine what a customer would do thinking about that if they would just get up and and go. And, and, And it made me wonder, okay, well, is the company really the driver of growth and Moveri Consulting is just a support for that company? I didn't get the relationship. I didn't get the relationship. Well, as you're talking, it kind of dawned on me. It's almost like it feels almost like Moviri is the the access channel to to new business opportunities, right? It's like it's you surface big problems that with enterprise clients, and then you turn those into the solutions into external products you can take elsewhere. That's a hypothesis, but that's kind of what it feels like. This is a company. My understanding, I don't think they do a good job of articulating the history of the firm. Is it, this is a firm born out of academia and a product legacy. The company used to be called Neptuni. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. They developed a performance optimization product that was sold to a company called BMC. And after that sale, the company was rebranded Moveri. Moveri, by the way, I, I had to look this up because the brand story is not there, is Italian for movement to move that's cool yeah i i I really like the name i think it's kind of a cool name sounds cool feels cool feels like a tech firm i mean it just seems to be really good what shift gears here is we're we're coming up on a half an hour in and we we still have probably a lot of stuff to cover i don't want to keep us here forever point of view anything jump out to you on that when you looked at thought leadership did you see a you know, a coherent, clear, central point of view. What, what, what was your takeaway? My takeaway is there's a lot of depth in this company that's not making it out. There's not a lot of intellectual capital on the website. I don't see kind of a strong point of view coming through in the thought leadership that I saw. There is a point of view. They are willing to articulate 
here's our opinion on this. I think that's positive. But my sense is that the intellectual capital development and push is happening at this company level of the the brand architecture. It is. Because when you go to the individual companies, and the companies are Akamas, Arduino, Cleefy, and content-wise, and each one of those is aligned with a, a business line, that there's some good thinking out there, but still not a lot. They fall in that trap of doing more promotion of events, news, partnership, you know, agreements being signed, not a lot of, you know, breakthrough thinking. And if you're going to position around big problems and transformation, I think it's important to be talking about big problems and in transformation. So much of their intellectual capital, and I think this is important, so I don't want to discount it, was focused on case studies and use cases. And those are important, but I want to see the thinking behind those more so because we're playing in the ether here to a large degree. Yeah. Well, it's my take on that too was, I guess I would agree. I, what I saw was it looked like there was some really smart thinking sort of almost inside the business lines, if you will. You know, some of the stuff you see is about artificial intelligence or DevOps or, you know, stuff inside the business that, you know, is demonstrating that they have something important and interesting to say inside those business lines, which then, that's your point, is probably inside of the, the machinations of building these other companies that they're building. I didn't get a, like a, a clear master point of view that, that jumped out at me as like, this is the all-encompassing view on the world that we have either for the, the firm at, as a whole or any one of those individual business lines. You know, like this is how our view on analytics and, and what you should be thinking about with analytics I and mean, what's important and how you get analytics right. I'm sort of being overly simplistic, but there's no like master point of view on, on analytics or master point of view on, you know, cybersecurity that governs sort of how they shape the, their, their view on the world. I did not see much happening there at the high level, I saw things happening more at a very specific, a little bit lower level, which is hard to translate up to, you know, the firm strategy, if you will. Yeah. And I think that normally manifests in that way when your experts are deeply technical people yeah. and not business people. And my sense with this firm is they have deep technical expertise, not necessarily strong business acumen or management consulting type of expertise. So their comfort spot, if you will, is that technical dimension. And they've defaulted, and I could be wrong on this, another caveat, to a, a broader base demonstration of intellectual capital. Remember, our definition of intellectual capital or mine, I think you, you would agree with this as well, is the monetization of the firm's thinking. And that doesn't mean just white papers. That means developing products and solutions. Yeah. And that's where most of their investment seems to be is into these individual companies, which really are software platforms. Which, which to your point, you know, I think both of us ended up sort of grading them poorly on the, on the dimension of point of view as a firm. And maybe, you know, thinking out loud, we're both backwards on that in the sense of like, the best manifestation of thought leadership is, you know, growing businesses, right? So, and from all external dimensions, at least on the, what they're claiming, those four companies that have spun out of their work 
are still look like they're really successful. You know, so you might argue, well, that's much better than a really great white paper and an HBR article pickup is is building a highly successful, high performing company based on your point of view on you know how analytics should be done in, in this situation or whatever. You know, so it could be to your point that intellectual capital is really really powerful inside of the business in terms of how it's it's turning into you know revenue for them you know through their separate operating companies you're listening to rattle and pedal divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm your hosts are jason malicki principal of rattleback the marketing agency for professional services firms and jeff mckay former cmo and founder of strategy consultancy prudent pedal If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. Let's keep moving along. There's there's three more points on the methodology that we have in here. Two kind of go hand in hand. One's about personality and one's about brand identity. And I think personality, we're more defining as tone of voice and, and what it feels like and and then brand identity is a little bit more about sort of the visual expression of things. So the logo itself and then all the visual things that are attached to it to create something unique and memorable in the marketplace. I think we've both graded on these dimensions both pretty similarly. I don't know, you want to talk a little bit about it or you want me to, to jump on it? Jump on it. The first thing for me was on the tone of voice side, I actually found the firm a little bit arrogant. And so it's almost like one of the questions we ask is, you know, is the firm giving a confident tone of voice? And I think it actually goes a little bit too far at times. And I th- I found this particularly in the manifesto, where there's a line of language where it says, basically, we have yet to fail at a single business venture and have reached goals that seemed impossible. That turned me off when I heard that kind of language, sort of like it felt very braggadocious, like, hey, you know, we're some kind of unicorn that never, never fails. And that may be true, but it just, it just doesn't feel right to me. It feels off-putting. So from a tone of voice, and then that sort of stuck with me everywhere I went beyond that. I mean, you know, that phrase never went away. It's in the back of my mind pretty much the rest of the time I'm interacting with the site. So that was something I took away from a tone of voice perspective. From a brand identity perspective, I felt like for the most part, it's there's nothing like super unique. Like in one of my tests is like, if I took that logo off and I put someone else's logo in there, would you even know anything happened? You know, I mean, like if you took the McKinsey logo off and shoved Baines in there, would it look out of place? Yeah, it would look way out of place. If I took the Moviri logo off and put in any IT services firm, I don't know that you would really know that anything really happened because there's not a whole lot that's visually distinct or unique. One thing they did, I do I do actually kind of like is, is they've got for each of their four, back to our solutions architecture discussion, for each of those four dimensions of, of expertise, they've got these sort of blocks that almost look like elements in the periodic table. And I kind of like them. It sort of just gives a, some grounding and visual expression of those things without using iconography. And that's, I thought was pretty unique and, and was pretty nice. But other than that, nothing really struck me as great. The other thing is a bit of a criticism, honestly, is I noticed that I had, I, at least in my, my interactions with the site on Firefox, I get a lot of images that sort of cut off. Words get cut off, edges of images get cut off. And so it just comes off as sort of sloppy dev. And then to your point, there's a couple broken pages that I, I thought was maybe an issue. It could be a, a browser issue, but pages where the, the stuff's just not rendering. And I found that as sort of problematic, but that was about it. I mean, all in all, it's a good, clean site. I mean, I don't want to be overly harsh. It's not like it's a bad site by any means. It just doesn't strike me as necessarily distinct and unique relative to any other IT services firm. 
Yeah, I would agree with you. I, I thought it was incredibly generic as well in its layout and its imagery. Although there was one image we both agreed on on the opening <laughs> on yeah. the home page. They have some B-roll running in the header and they have this really cool looking building. I don't know what the building is with all these trees growing out of it. Then we were just struck by that and just wanted to kind of absorb it. So I think that that's kind of a, a positive neat in, net impression, if you will, when you first land on the, on the page. But overall, I found the brand identity really generic and its execution somewhat inconsistent. And the breakages in the website, and I had lots of them in Chrome, was kind of off-putting. I really had to work hard to see some of this stuff because images weren't loading and there was text over the images that was lost and links weren't working and things like that. It made me wonder, how is this brand and this firm's marketing managed? Do each of the individual companies have their own marketing organizations or is this one organization, Muveri, and these individual companies are run as sub-brands of some kind, you know, or a portfolio of brands within, you know, the, the larger brand by one marketing organization, because the individual companies seem to, to have more attention to some of the creative. That's not true of all of them. But the intellectual capital and the creative just seems stronger at the individual company levels. Well, yeah. Again, it comes back. I, I agree. It comes back to something I, I kind of said earlier. Is like I, I kind of wonder if like that's where all the money is. Maybe that maybe like those those four operating companies are the real drivers of growth, and Moveri is sort of a holding company that that is identifying opportunities for investment or something. Or Duido, by the way, is a really um, um, for anybody that's into IoT, it's actually a really well known brand. Uh huh. You know, so it's pretty big product base, pretty, pretty big user base, both kind of in the DIY crowd and I think in, 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 in the broader engineering sector too. So, yeah. I want to go back to the firm personality because yeah. I know you're going to give us, as Kid Roxat says in the song Cocky, it ain't bragging if you can back it up. I like their confidence. I, it's clear to me that they see themselves as technologists, as engineers, as experts, and that comes through. I think it could come through even stronger. It will turn people off like, you know, you said it did to you, but it's also going to excite some other people. You know, in brand study after brand study, the one thing that clients want from, you know, a consulting firm is a work guarantee, if you will, right? They don't want to put their careers and reputation at risk for a failed project. So, I think when you throw out some statistics of the failure to success ratio, that can be a really positive way to appease that anxiety in a buyer, but also to differentiate yourself from from your competitors. So I I kind of like that. I kind of like that. Yeah, and I think that's it's it. You know, this is all subjective, right? It's, a lot of comms is really subjective, especially when you get down to that level. And to your point, it also comes down to maybe what type of buyer you want to, you're trying to connect with and what they're most receptive to. I also sort of wonder between you and me if how important even the the, the web property is in their go to market strategy, because I'm sure some listeners already figured this out. If you type Bovary into, into search, I can't even get it to show up on page one for its own branding. 
So like to get to the site, I had to literally, you know, go to LinkedIn and, and pull it off of there. It seems to me like the site itself is practically invisible, but that could be wrong. That's one basic search I did, but I found it very odd that with such a unique name, their their LinkedIn pages and Glassdoor pages and other things were showing up ahead of ahead of their own URL. You know, it's funny that you say that, Jason. And I have this anxiety that we were evaluating this company that may not actually be in business anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It looks to me like the website has not been maintained. It's breaking. There's not a lot of new stuff being put out. It was almost set it and forget it. It really... You know what's funny about that to me, by the way? Mm-hmm. Is like if you go to their news page, there's there's a news release of dated November twenty fourth. Looks like it's twenty twenty two. I should probably click through and double check. And if you go to the footer, the copyright is dated twenty twenty two. So it based on those data points, it actually looks like it's probably but that's pretty current. That's only three months, right? Well, uh-huh. that November twenty fourth, I can't substantiate that. That is that that is twenty twenty two. My point being that like look at your expectation for what's current, right? It's like, you know, we're talking two months and you're like, ah, I don't know. This doesn't feel like it's even in business. <laughs> like you went to that far of an extreme. It just shows you that our expectations for fresh, useful information on a site are, are really, really high. I don't think you would, you never would have said that 10 years ago. You'd never been like, oh my gosh, right? But right now you, you were quick to make that, that observation, which I just, I just think it's interesting. Like, I think it's really interesting, by the way. I didn't get that sense, but I think it's, it's an, it's like I said, it's a super interesting point. Yeah. Well, I I definitely had the same impression as you as, is this website even relevant to the business model? Is the real growth driver somewhere else sitting in the companies or some other referral source where the website just isn't needed other than to justify that this firm, quote unquote, exists? Yeah. It's a capabilities tool or something along those lines. Okay, so we have one dimension left. It's employer brand. Did you want to say anything about that on this particular firm, or do you want to jump into some some takeaways for listeners? Well, let let me just wrap it up with an employer brand because I think the employer brand, the firm personality, and that point of view that the firm brings to bear are really important in that brand driver that I call simpatico. And my sense is the employer brand is. Is, is built around this, we are technologists, we are engineers, come work with more engineers, solve big problems. Outside of that, I found the employer brand somewhat generic. Nothing that made me go, oh, wow, that's really cool. It's kind of the standard, here's our extracurricular events and here are our benefits and, and here's how you can grow your career. In looking at the feedback on Glassdoor, there is some feedback there, but it's so dated. It was <laughs> another one of those things that made me think, is this firm vibrant and and moving ahead? It has a pretty nice careers subdomain page, and it looks like it's actively recruiting, but in terms of a, a really strong, differentiated employer brand, I didn't see it. I, I felt they were just as generic there as they were overall in their positioning. All right. I'm going to, in the interest of time, I'm going to disagree. I didn't have any strong opinions one way or the other on that dimension. So let's, let's offer some takeaways, some learnings. So, so for, so for listeners, you know, 
this is not your firm. You don't know this firm. Hopefully you took a few minutes to look at their site so you can kind of relate to some of what we're seeing. But I want to give you some some takeaways of the things that you can use in your own efforts to execute your business strategy through your external comms here. So I've got four. I'll start with one. Maybe you can, and then maybe we'll go back and forth. What do you think? Well, I have 30. You have 30? Okay. Well then uh, I'll, I'll do one, then you do 12, and then I'll do another one. Okay. I'm teasing. Okay. So the first one I, I think is is a question I think every marketer needs to ask themselves. They need to can go back to your site and take a moment and say, ask yourself the question, are you firms, are we firm-centric or client-centric in our communications? Not a, I mean, I'm not talking about culturally as a firm. Take a look at what you're saying through the lens of, does this really feel client-centric or does it feel like we're talking about ourselves too much? Because that was one of my big takeaways is it felt like they were leaning. It was it was too much on the, on the firm-centric dimension. I actually think that's a really important question to always go back and ask yourself when you look at anything you're saying to the marketplace. That's an evergreen one. My, yeah. my first one's evergreen too. It is marketing 101, and I say it time and time and time and time again, but firms still don't do it. You have to pick a niche, an ideal client, a problem to solve or a particular type of value to deliver that is not so generic that you get lost in the ether. You cannot position around transformation. It's silliness. And every industry has their transformation moniker. This is one of the hardest things to do, I think, intellectually, finding that white space but also operationally getting buy-in and consensus in order to execute it. But you have to get this right or everything that comes after is weakened as a result. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. I had sort of a question that you have to ask yourself as it relates to that. And it's sort of like, if you went to your firm site right now and you didn't know your firm at all, could you discern who the ideal client is? that's the exercise we were forced to do with this firm, right? Is who's the ideal client here? And we struggled. We struggled to figure that out. And I think that's a question every firm leader and marketing leader needs to ask themselves. If you didn't know your business as well as you know it, do you think you could come and figure that out in, I don't know, five seconds or less, 30 seconds or less, five minutes or less? Um, We both spent hours with this this site and I don't think either one of us has a better answer to that question. I would think that would be a concern for most firms if that's where, you know, pretty smart marketers ended up. The other one I'll pay- piggyback on that was like, I, I mentioned this earlier, if I replaced your logo, would it matter? So like, it's like, would that change anything? Would it throw a shock to the system? You know, would it feel wrong? And if it, the answer is uh, probably not, that's a visual problem that you might have. Well, it's like, well, do we have something differentiating here if that's important to you? And I would argue in most cases it probably is. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I like your little litmus test. Those are good. Yeah, those are real gut checks. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I was kind of kind of coming back to it. It's like it's like some of this. It's like you know, you, you, there are just questions you have to ask yourself, and, it's, and often you don't like the answers, but that's just the reality. I have one more of those, but you tell me what else your takeaways, what else you had in there. Well, one of the things that this firm did well is its solution architecture around its four business lines. Even yeah. though I kind of push back on on calling them business lines, they. They chose them. There was a rationale behind choosing them. 
they were in a language that probably spoke to their ideal buyer and they drove them through everything and did it consistently, linked everything back to them, not perfectly, but they did make the attempt to drive them back. And if nothing else, a buyer could come to this website and say, hey, I need help with performance engineering. It looks like you do that. Let's have a conversation. But I, I thought they did a good job of, of operating discipline around that. And, and most firms could benefit from that. And this is a good example of it. Yeah, you're 100% right about that. I, I agree wholeheartedly that they were they were really good at that. I have another question that I'll leave listeners with, and that is related to some of the things we talked about, broken experiences, is that understand the business you're in and, and what that means to your outward expression. So the reason I, I'm, I'm saying that is because when I look at the things that I saw that were breaking, like certain pages wouldn't function, certain images are getting cut off on the web experience. Again, I'll go back to my comment about that positioning. This is an IT services firm that wants to tackle the world's largest problems, yet it can't render an image on a web page. <laughs> Remember what the that, same thing. What your yeah. clients think about this. The story I love to tell is one of our, our clients we had early on was an engineering firm and and they had four different business cards in use. And I thought to myself, so I, I told the CEO, I said, so you walk into a client and you lay your business cards down and you three, three of them are different. What happens when I design a building and, and, and there's that level of inconsistency in the work? Does the building fall down? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's what these like great. little implicit things that these things give off. So I just say it's like, understand the business you're in and then, and then think about what that means about your outward expression in the sense of those little cues send bad signals to clients and, and you... You can't, and I get it. You can't solve for everything. You can't. You don't know every browser. I mean, for all I know, this whole site was built in Italian, and now it's being rendered in English. I thought that same thing. And I thought that exact same thing. Yeah, that's I think super that hard to manage for. So yeah, I'm I'm trying not to be critical about that because it, it, it's hard. Build a lot of websites. It's hard, mm-hmm. but but it's it's something that you always have to be mindful of. Well, the website is well supported with a pretty comprehensive tech stack. They're a HubSpot user. Not not that that necessarily means that you have sophisticated marketing organization, but you would think if you're if you're using some of the technologies they're using on that website that you could effectively run a website. I, I couldn't agree more with you about what is your rendering of your brand communicating about your capabilities. Yeah. And if you're an IT consulting firm and your your website is not effective, that's putting a lot of bad vibes out there. Yeah, but it sounds ticky tacky. I know that people sometimes will, will take that and be offended. Like, Jason, that's so ticky tack. Yeah, but I think I think people notice those little things, um, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously they do, or or, or sometimes they directly consciously. Like, Jeez, can't get that right. But you want to go after you know my digital transformation. That's right. Professional services oh. is a game of millimeters now. Yeah, you have to get that stuff right. I mean, that's the stuff within your control. You yeah, have to, fair point. You have to take care yeah. of what you you yeah. can control. You cannot, and and this, and I'm just going to jump on on your your third one with my third one is you cannot set it and forget it. And this yeah. firm looked like it set it and and forgot it, and a lot of firms do that, and that's why you get into these big wholesale three to five year web redos because things get yeah. dated or they yeah. they've grown you know, organically into this unmanageable monster, you 
have to operate on that every day, every day. And if you can't manage that, given your resources, then you need to simplify, simplify, simplify. It's better for you to have a, a, a one pager website that works flawlessly, you know, than a 50 pager that's breaking all over the place. Yeah. You've got to execute. It's that simple. All right. Well, do you have any other takeaways? That that, that was all, all my key takeaways. If not, I'll take us to wrap. But if you have any, then let's, let's get them in before we, before we depart. I'm done. Okay. All right. So listeners, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you got value out of it. Obviously, this is a longer episode than we normally do. And it's a very different episode than what we've done in the past. We've only done this once before. So we'd love your feedback. You know, so for those of you who can, there's a contact page, I believe, on the on the Rattle and Pedal site. So you can reach out through that venue or if you uh, reach out to either one of us through LinkedIn or or email as well. So this was a lot of fun, Jeff. So we'll, we'll do, we're going to do one of these a month. So So the goal is to deliver uh, 12 of these throughout the year. Oh, do we want to share that the, the total score? Because you know, there's there's a net of a hundred points available on these on on these six dimensions or, or a gross, I guess, a total of a hundred points. We, we want to share the score that this firm ended up having, or do we want to keep that under the under wraps? No, I think we should share it. Okay. All right. Well, oddly enough, the total score ended up being you know average at 44. So we both ended up at the same place, a score of 44. So 44 points out of 100. So not a great grade, but um, at the same time, this is the first one. So we may find that that's the average. We don't know. We'll see over time. You know where, where firms net out. But that was that was where we scored. You know what I think is interesting about that score is that could easily be an 80. <laughs> it it really could. And I think that's something important to to keep in mind. And maybe this is the final takeaway. You have to be ruthless in your self-assessment, but you need to have a mindset of continuous improvement. And the competitive landscape is always changing and you always have to be looking at this and changing up what it is that you're doing in order to remain competitive. I think these scores could easily jump. And, and one would hope, if Muveri were to listen to this podcast, might take to heart some of these suggestions. They might poo-poo them and saying, yeah, you're right. You don't understand our business or anything about it. <laughs> and we would give ourselves a hundred. But these evaluations are done in a spirit of good faith. And if Muveri people, you're listening, you got a great firm. There's some good stuff going on there. Just two men's opinion here. Yeah, I think I think the goal is is learnings for all, really, and so I, that's why I was hoping the takeaways would help people people really do that. So, all right, let's wrap. We are I don't know what we're doing next week, so I'm not even going to tease that. So we're going to I don't have I don't have the editorial calendar in front of me. So good discussion, and uh, we'll talk next week. See you, Benny. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.